Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, welcome to the 285th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you yet again by Dax Martinez Vargas. Thanks, Dax. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we have Amber Seeley on the show. She's talking to us about her new film, No Man of God. It's a Ted Bundy story, kind of told from the story of an FBI investigator played by Frodo himself, Elijah Wood. I'm sure he hates that. That's probably pretty rude. He has a, a pretty illustrious producing career now in his own company. I he's, think, he's always no, he's always the good son to me, really. He was in that New Zealand campaign that Taika Waititi directed playing Frodo. So I think, I think he's okay with it. So, yeah, we talked to Amber about her career. She started as an actor and then moved into the front of the camera. She's done a ton of different stuff. She's a, uh, a straight-up independent voice, which is really wonderful. And, you know, she has kind of those indie roots. I think we have a lot of things in common. I think it was a really uh, fun conversation to have with her. Yeah, and when you think that making getting into film is easy or, like, people just moved to L.A. and made some feature and got discovered and it's disheartening, I think she's this great example. I mean, I think she's a lot like a lot of us who she's just someone that like worked really hard, did all the programs, made the $10,000 movie, made the $30,000, like kept, kept climbing the ladder and just, you know, now is making multi-million dollar movies, you know, selling pilots, doing all sorts of fun, awesome things, but really worked her way to get where she is. And she has a family and she has like a whole life outside of film, which is cool, which I, I always like, love to hear these stories of well-rounded people because, you know, who likes the workaholics? Like, I know we all are workaholics in a way, but it's nice to hear about people that, uh, you know, go out to dinner for their birthday or something. Yeah, have lives, basically, and uh, and can model that for people at home. Because I think that that's not a thing that people talk about a ton, you know? Yeah. So I think you're going to really like this. I think there's a lot of great lessons from Amber, and it's a pretty, pretty good length interview, so we're not going to chat too much about ourselves and our thoughts about what we're doing in our lives at the moment you'll hear a lot of that in the interview but before we speak to amber i'd love to remind people that we have a patreon patreon.com slash just shoot it pod it's a place you can go you can give a dollar two dollars four dollars ten dollars i actually think i owe two hats currently for ten dollars you get a just shoot it podcast hat that you can wear on set and we have been pretty consistently as soon as i mail out the hats people do go from the ten dollar level back to uh 
you know, whatever level they were at before the $10 level, which is totally valid. You can do that. That's, I think, what we encourage people to do even on occasion. That's the deal we struck, I think. That's, yeah. yeah, that's the burden we bear. That's what. That's the deal we made with all of you. Maybe we should revise it sometime soon. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, patreon.com slash justunitpod. We really appreciate it. When you sign up, it makes us want to keep making the podcast. So thank you for doing that. And that's all I got. So yeah, we'll we'll hop into our conversation with Amber Seeley and uh, talk about her new film, No Man of God, which is in theaters now, but you can also rent it on iTunes and all the places where you watch movies right after these ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we are here with Amber Seeley, a very decorated filmmaker. I find it interesting that your bio, which is incredible, by the way, has zero mention of your background as an actor. Oh, does it? Oh, is you know, you got to cut stuff out every now and then. I mean, not, not consciously, but maybe I was just like, oh, this is my directing bio. But yeah, yeah, I was an actor for a long time before I became a director. Well, congrats on congrats on your new movie, No Man of God, with uh, Elijah Wood and a bunch of other people. But I guess speaking of your acting, can you take us back a little bit about like how you got into directing? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So I started out as an actor, and the acting thing happened because well, I was born in England, but living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I grew up, and you British it was just people. The first thing. Won't let us get around? have anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm hardly British. I left when I was three. So, you know, my dad's British, but, you know, I mean, I did go back there to go to drama school and then lived there for eight years working as an actor. So, you know, I guess it is part of my life, but, but I don't have the accent. So I feel like I can't really claim it, you know, I'm not the full cool Brit. Um, it is a little insufferable when your friend goes away for the summer and comes back with an accent. And they're just like, oh, I'm so sorry. It just stuck. And oh, you're yeah. like, come on. To my friend you're Madonna. from Jersey. 
Yeah. I like to make fun of I have this really good friend of mine, Serena. She won't mind me saying this because I've said it to her, but she she's also American. I met her in London, lived in London for many years, and still she stayed there. But she's of Italian heritage, and she's the kind of person that would walk into a Starbucks and say, "Hi, can I please have un espresso?" And I was, <laughs> I was always like, "Serena, I, I am like, charmed you're by in that." A fucking Starbucks. I love that, yeah. and I love them. I love a mixed accent as well. I love charmed. it when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I yeah. Love it. So anyway, back to acting. I started when I was a little kid because it was the only thing that I was good at. Like I. I remember distinctly the first time I wrote a monologue. I was in this play and the principal was just very creative and he had us all like writing our own scenes. And I wrote a, a monologue for myself as the bearded woman. We were all part of a circus. And and I remember like all these adults being like, you're so funny. You're so good at that. And just being like, oh, I'm good at something. Like, <laughs> cause I was, I was a very unimpressive kid in all other ways. And, um, and so it just felt really good to have this thing that suddenly adults were telling me, you know, I was good at. And so then I just, from then on wanted to be an actor. And I think looking back on it now, I realized that I didn't really know that women could be directors. Like I didn't know any famous women directors. I, I didn't. But did you see, know like, a director? I mean, no one knows what a director is when they're a kid. Right. Well, I did because I was in a lot of plays. I mean, I was always oh, doing right. theater yeah. and in part of drama. You know, I, I did after school theater always up and, you know, from when I was, I mean, I started doing theater at like five, six, seven and eight, That's nine, funny. ten upwards. I was in plays because I did some, I mean, very rudimentary like school plays and things like that. But I feel like probably most of our directors were women. My mom also yeah, directed a lot of children's they, theater and musical theater. Amber, I, I totally hear what you're saying, though. My wife is an actor who also directs, and it, it's a similar story. It's the same sort of thing. She was obsessed with Jodie Foster because she was the only person she knew of who did both si- was on both sides of the camera. You know what I mean? And I think that, you know, there is that, especially, you know, depending on when you come of age, like when you start maybe watching behind the scenes DVDs or or like there's a TV special or whatever, it's it was only those movies that were so big that they had the budget to like have some sort of publicity thing where it was, you know, valuable to put Steven Spielberg or someone like that or George Lucas, like these dudes with beards and baseball hats, you know, on TV. So like that is a way of modeling. Right. And that's kind of like how the how the conversation has shifted, right? Like we we now know that like, oh, like if you only show one type of profession to a person, you know, young people maybe don't realize that other people can do it. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's been, I mean, we it's really been seen. Like if you, if you, if you see it, then you think you can be it, you know? And that, that, I mean, I just, I'm not saying there weren't any women directors when I was young, there were. And I, I even, I had an amazing acting teacher who did direct a little bit, but I very much remember that, you know, the director growing up in town who was getting all the attention was a man, Wayne Sabato, I remember. And, you know, like you say, like the directors when I was a kid that were really famous, it was John Hughes, it was Steven Spielberg, you know. And so I, I, I don't think I consciously put it together. I think I just sort of, for whatever reason, you know, understood that if I wanted to be in this business that I was supposed to be a performer. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized like, I also have a really big mouth and I want to be in control and I have been, you know, and I have stories that I want to tell. And 
So it was a really organic transition moving from being an actor and a dancer to, you know, to starting to write and direct. And I, I think it was probably a five-year period though, where I was like, I just started turning down auditions. I wasn't really quitting acting. It just suddenly became less interesting to me to audition for stuff. And, you know, 90% of what I was auditioning for were commercials and it just suddenly, you know, and then I also was having kids and, and I just was like, I don't feel like driving to Santa Monica for a McDonald's commercial. Like I just wasn't interested in, you know. Wait, did you grow up in LA? No, I grew up in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, I out of college, I went to LA and then I went to London and then I came back to LA. You went to Santa Cruz? UC Santa yeah, Cruz? Yeah, UC Santa Cruz. And you studied acting? I studied, yeah, theater arts and modern dance. And correct me if I'm wrong, I know a little bit about like that the film program up there but it's all very experimental and hippy dippy is that accurate well i had nothing to do with the film department up there because i was only doing theater and dance so but it is, I, the, is the theater department similar in that way yes i mean my friends that have been very successful coming out of that department yeah i mean well, Gabe Fleming, uh, he was a good friend of mine there and he's now a big fancy editor i was in two of his Santa Cruz films and they were totally arty and weird. And, and I remember like the, him telling me that the film teacher there liked really, you know, liked his stuff cause it was also very weird and arty. And, and my brother-in-law was also in the film department there. And I, that's how I met my husband actually was my brother-in-law was in film there and his senior thesis film I acted in and we stayed friends and he introduced me to his brother, like, you know, I don't know, 15 years later. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's how I met. Yeah. Well, wh- while we're on the topic of your early career, we're looking at I'm looking at your bio right now and I'm seeing Sundance Film them Independent Women in Film, AFI DWW Workshop for Women, Ryan Murphy's Half Initiative, like you kind of you you've got the your dance card is full of like all of the different initiatives and programs that you can be a part of. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, some of it is just that like when I see other people that are successful and doing the things that I want to do and I see that they did certain programs and I think, okay, I guess I'll do those programs, you know? So there's that. And then there's also just, I mean, again, I don't want this whole thing to be about gender or like sex in, in sexism in the industry, but like it really does exist. Women are really told that they have to do a certain degree of shadowing in order to get, you know, into, for example, episodic television and, and stuff like that. We just are really told that we've got to continually prove ourselves and continually get little notches on our belts. And, you know, and sometimes when you're in between projects and or things aren't getting financed as quickly as you want them to, then you're like, oh, I guess I'll just apply to a program. And, you know, because it's, it's a thing to fill up your time. But it's also something that, you know, you, you get something out. I mean, it's a tangible, like you learn something. Some of the programs you get a, say, like a certificate from. Some of them, it's just a line on your bio. Some of them you get an episode out of. They're all really different, and um, but they all serve different purposes. It just sort of depends. I mean, for me, it was certainly like wanting to show a kind of well-roundedness in, on my bio, so wanting to do various different things because I thought they were useful and I thought that they would show, you know, different skill sets of mine. It is really interesting what you're saying about women being like told they should shadow people because we've had, you know, this is episode 280, whatever. Um, We've had a lot of directors on. We've had a lot of female TV directors on. And I'd say like in the totality of episodes we've had, they all 
shadowed a ton. And, you know, we, um, we've had probably a less, honestly, male TV directors, but they don't, don't seem talk, to have as many shadowing stories. Like we had I mean, um, no, they ha- don't. Hanley Culpepper. Hanley Culpepper. Cul- yeah, Culpepper shadowed like 36, 36 times, I think. Yeah. At least. Said. Maggie like Kiley, a similar sort of bio, you know, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But- no, it's a real, it's a, it's a real issue. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to name names here because they're good friends of mine, but I have a very good male friend who was like, I think I'm going to, you know, direct TV. He did do one program and then just got episode after episode after episode. And I have so many female friends who are like smart, talented, capable, interesting, and they shadow for years. It really is true. All women directors, we get together and we're like, I was fucking asked to show. We're allowed to swear, right? I'm yes, 100%. Fucking, children would be I so bored by the show. I mean, my children swear, so I don't have a problem with them hearing about this. But um, yeah, like women just saying, I was I was asked to shadow again. I mean, women who have already directed episodes of television and are still being asked to shadow again. And at a certain point, it just becomes comical. It's like, how hard do we have to work to prove ourselves, you know? And uh, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy to me, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be easier to name the number of programs you haven't been a part of than the ones that you have. (laughs) Truly. You know what I mean? I'm like trying to think of one that I'm familiar with. I mean, and and they're all hyper competitive, right? Like that's the thing we're leaving out of this is it's like, you know, there's that expectation of getting into all of these, but they are so hard to get on those yeah. lists, you know? Mm-hmm. They are. They are. For what I it's mean, worth, there are a lot I that feel, I haven't done. Oh, sorry. I feel, I feel like I should, I've shadowed a couple times. I feel like I should have shadowed way more. <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, shadowing, don't get me side. wrong. I love shadowing. I love it. It's, it's really interesting to watch another director work. Like it's fascinating. Um, but it, when it's when it slips into like sexism is when you go like, all right, you know, when you don't see the men having to shadow or, or you know, like you said, having those same shadowing stories. And and yeah, I, I, I know so many women who have shadowed. God, I know I know one woman who I'm not recommending this, but there's one woman who shadowed for like 11 years. And at a certain point, I would, you know, if it were me, I would be like, all right, this isn't for me, you know, this industry, obviously. But, you know. Well, what I find fascinating about your story, Amber is and I know we're just like kind of touching on the tip of it but you said that like when you had kids is when you decided I'm going to stop driving across town for like a craft macaroni and cheese commercial in Santa Monica where I'm up against 100 people and I'm going to start like kind of shifting into more like control like a place where I have more control and more power and more like you know expression and it's funny cuz I have especially during the covid I've always thought like um I have I have two kids also and it's like those people without kids, they just have it made like they can just work on their scripts all day. They can, you know, have coffees with other directors. And if they get COVID, who cares? They're vaccinated. Unlike my kids, you know, um, it just kind of seems like once you have kids, it becomes way harder to become a successful director. But you kind of um, have the opposite story. You're like, well, now I have kids. I'm not going to waste my time auditioning. I'm just going to kind of be more direct as a director. Oh, that's funny. I mean, well, first of all, I think pre-pandemic and pandemic are two totally different things. Like I, I totally agree with you. Like people without kids during the pandemic, those are the people that are like, I just, you know, I decided to grow all my own vegetables and that's what I'm doing. And I'm like, 
go fuck yourself because I have two screaming <laughs> screaming kids. Like I did get me. pretty I mean, excited about a new screenplay during the pandemic. That is okay, true. Well, you don't have kids? <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Well, um, I mean, it's just it's been so, a very excuse different. Excuse me, thing. I'll uh, be off. Uh, yeah, fucking if you myself, could just go for a minute. Yeah. Give us a couple minutes alone to really hash this out. But no, but it's very true. I mean, like my husband and I are vaccinated, but our kids are not old enough yet to be vaccinated, and so our life hasn't really changed. Like we're like, we still can't go to restaurants and like, you know, like we're still just ordering groceries and ordering takeout and like barely going anywhere. You know, I mean, our kids started school, which is scary enough, um, you know, cause it's, you just feel like you're opening your pod up to like 500 other people that you have no idea what they're anyway, not to go down that pandemic road. But um, I mean, I did, st- I made my first film before I had kids. So I did start getting is interested that a plus in being, D? That's A plus D, yeah. I shot it in short? London. No, it's a feature. So your first film was a feature? Yeah. Yeah. And how did why did you not do like some shorter stuff first? Or yeah, tell us about the it. Yeah. To start on a feature. I'm not really a short filmmaker. Like I it's a <laughs> it's a different like it's a different thing. It's a different pattern. It's a different rhythm. It's a different thing. And I don't as you'll learn in this next hour, I really like to go on and on and on. And so like my brain doesn't really work in those short. I may, I have made one short film called How Does It Start? Which I made only because for the- And that's one that played Sundance. That played Sundance, yeah. I guess- But somehow you're not a short film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, prior to that, I tried to make my three features before that, A plus D, How to Cheat, and No Light, No Land Anywhere. All three I tried to get into Sundance. And with all of them, I think I like, you know, you get that nice letter from the programmers. It's like almost, but you know, so I, I like to think to myself that they almost got in, um, even though they didn't get in. So I don't know, maybe I should have made shorts. Cause then when I finally made a short, it did get into Sundance. But, well, but um, I think though, I, this is a, a thought that I don't know that we've talked about on the show. And I'm really excited by the point that, you know, making a short and making a feature are two drastically different things. They're different disciplines and there's a lot of overlap, certainly in terms of craft, but like the ability to tell a engrossing 90 minute, hundred minute story is different than finding the simplest, most concise version of the same exploration of themes and ideas that a short kind of begs to be, you know, we've all seen those shorts that, really are just like a proof of concept for a feature. And sometimes that works out, but most of the time the idea doesn't lend itself to that. And so I love that you're just like, no, you know, my style of storytelling wants to be feature length. That's awesome. You know, and I feel like I mean, granted my features are short, they're tight features, you know, they're not two hours long, you know, they're like an hour and 20, an hour and 30, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't be (laughs) 10 minutes. You know what I mean? I mean, not for me. I I mean, it was hard enough to make How Does It Start? And that, by the way, is from a feature that I wrote before I made the short. And I just cut that up and took some scenes and sort of pushed them together and then rewrote it to make the short. So even that, I didn't write the script solely, you know, as trying to be a short. But I mean, there's amazing shorts out there, like amazing. And I, I watch them. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. I just don't, you know, my brain really thinks a little bit like I want to be with those characters a little longer. I want to see what happens to them a little later. Um, Some of the best shorts are like these, like the thinnest slice of life you've ever seen, you know. And you're like, 
it, it is a totally different muscle. And I think that's interesting because I'm always arguing with Matt, who was really gung ho feature. And I'm like, what if you have $30,000, you could make a pretty awesome short and it would be a pretty bare bones feature, you know? And so I'm like, you know, I've been really pushing for this proof of concept short thing idea. But I, I think you're making a, you know, a good point for Matt's Matt's side of the argument. Well, I think that no matter what, the idea just has to lend itself to whatever resources you have. Like no one wants to make a bad feature or a bad short. But so you just have to set yourself up for success. So if you've only got $30,000 in this hypothetical, then, you know. I've made a feature for 30000 and I've made a short for 30000 I will say the $30,000 short was the one that got into Sundance and definitely has much better, you know, production value and production design, all of that, you know. So it also depends on what you're willing to compromise on, you know. For me, with my first features, I didn't even, I was just experimenting with like the craft and learning how to be a filmmaker. I think of my first three features really as film school. And how does it start in a sense was really the first thing that was like really my voice. Um, And your first feature stars you also. Yeah. My first two I acted in and my third one I did not act in. Is your Um, first one the $30,000 one? uh, No, that was even less. The second one was the, the, how does, how to cheat was like 30,000. So tell us, can you give us like kind of a quick, just a quick overview of like, your first one, what it got you that led to the second one and what the second one got you? Because I think, you know, people what can look at your trailer and your bio and your most recent stuff and it's like big budget with big movie stars. But like, how did you get there? Uh, my first one, A plus D, I think it cost like $10,000. Gabe Fleming edited it. That film at the time I had was living in an apartment in uh, Echo Park and a guy living up above me, he had a good friend who had just won Best Director at Sundance that year. And I had a feedback screening and he either came to a feedback screening or my friend gave it to him. I can't quite remember how it happened, but he watched it and he said, hey, do you mind if I introduce, if I send this to uh, the Sundance programmers? And I was like, yeah, great. you know." But also sort of like, I don't know anything about this world or how to get in there. And it was the year before the next uh, thing started at Sundance, the next section, which is sucks because I think had, had it been a one year later, I think it would have maybe, got, I don't know, maybe again, I'm fooling myself, but. Um, for those that don't know, that, the next section is for films under under $500,000, right? I think, yeah. I, I mean, it was yeah, just that. It, it also rough. is like a little uh, weirder, I think. is yeah. kind of It's less star driven and like more midnight true, movie true sort indie, of vibe yeah, yeah. right yeah, well yeah. Sundance had this problem that basically they were their initial goal was to help independent filmmakers and they ended up basically just programming like a24 movies it's the same thing as with the indie spirit awards you know right like right so anyway but uh so it didn't get in but it got me on the sort of tracking thing uh, for the Sundance programmers. And so from then on, I knew them, they, you know, I had their, cause one of them had sent me a really nice email saying, you know, you didn't get in, but we want to, you know, you almost got in and we loved your movie. And so that kind of, and also the film. And this is uh, off a $10,000 movie that you shot like on yeah, mini DV or something or how? A mini DV in my friend's apartment. It was, it was me, the actor, one camera person and one sound person. And that was it. 
And yeah, and so it kind of, and it won some awards and it actually got distribution with a small distributor. And so they, you know, they made DVDs and they made, uh, they put it up digitally and, and I won some awards and it got into some cool. Like, may may I ask, did, did you make money on it? Um, I mean, this was like before I even knew how to do accounting. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. I mean, I Maybe? don't, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, probably you, not. I would yeah, say yeah. probably not. 2008, you know? right? When IMDb says it came out. I get, yeah, sure. But if I'm whatever IMDb says, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it came out in '09 or something. I, th- I remember, yeah, like, I started putting stuff on. It doesn't matter, right? Like, you know, like it, you kind of like, like you were saying, people. I owe that much in money in film school debt still, um, right? So, like, it's not actually, but but to to the point though of like what you know, Orin was saying, like, what are the what steps? How did you level up with each of these films? I think you know that it got distri- distribution and put you on the radar is kind of yeah, that, that exactly. One, that was the leveling up was that I got yeah. distribution and I got and I got some awards and I got sort of I got the email of some Sundance programmers. <laughs> I got their email address, and then how to cheat? I was actually was I pregnant? I can't quite remember, but I was trying to get pregnant. And, and that was another, oh, I had written the feature for how does it start? I think my, the first version of that, and I was trying to get that financed, but I didn't really know anything about how to get movies financed at that point. And so I, again, thought, you know what, I'm just going to make another no budget, like just experiment. I became friends with Joe Swanberg, uh, for a short time and, and he was, you know, May I I ask, was, yeah. how, how did you become friends with Joe Swanberg? I met him. How did I meet Joe? Like just I at a party, I, like just casually, and then you 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 know. Oh no no ah Gabe Fleming, the editor that we talked about. Mm-hmm. This is exciting. It all comes Great. back to Gabe Fleming. Great. Gabe Fleming. We were we were submitting um, A plus D to South by Southwest, and Gabe Fleming said because Gabe Fleming had directed his own feature that played South by I think the year before, or a couple of years before, and he had said you know what, like, I think this is a really good South by movie. I think they might like it. However, they just had this guy, Joe Swanberg, who had a movie. What was his movie? Alexander the Last. Is that, or Alexander the Great? One of the, I'm, I see, you can see I'm terrible with titles, but I think it was Alexander the Last. And it was a movie about, that was all about just a relationship, these two people and their relationship. He may, anyway, point is he had a movie with Greta and it was, him and her all just like them having a relationship, very sexual, very overt, very, you know, and it was really similar to A plus D. And Not I had nights and weekends. A- yes. Nights and weekends. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. it. Thank you. God. I'm so glad you guys have the internet over there. I don't have internet here. I can't look anything up. <laughs> anyway, nights and weekends. So Gabe said nights and weekends, but I doubt they'll play A plus D because they just played nights and weekends and they're really similar. And I was like, who the fuck is this Joe Swanberg guy? I got it. So I just Googled him and I, I, he had like a, you know, email address up on the internet. And I was like, Hey, I hear you have a movie called nights and weekends. It's really similar to a movie I just made called a plus D like, and he wrote back saying, yeah, let's do you want to do like a DVD swap. And so we mailed each other our DVDs in the mail and watched each other's movies. And, you know, we're fans of each other's movies or, you know, so I think, um, and we kind of became friendly and he then introduced me to Kent Osborne um, because I started to have this idea. 
and actually I had lunch with Joe and I was kind of like depressed and feeling like, Oh, I don't know what to do. And he, I think he encouraged me. He said, just make another movie on your own. Just like do it again on your own, you know, like was what he was doing. And I, that is the advice he would give. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I took it and it was good advice. You're paying for these on your own, right? Like $30,000. You just kind of, no, I did little crowdfunders. I did little crowdfunders. I, I didn't have that money. I, I, I grew up poor and so I didn't have $30,000 sitting around. So I did, I would do crowdfunding. And you were still acting at the time though too, like you were doing commercials and. Yeah, I was still doing little, uh, I mean, at that point when I left London, most of my acting, my like successful acting career was in London. So when I came back to LA, it was like a commercial here and there. And that was really kind of it. But anyway, yeah, Joe introduced me to Kent and Kent is great, a brilliant actor and also animate cartoon. I don't know what you call it. What do you call that? Cartoonist animator. He was, he worked on Sponge, SpongeBob and Adventure Time and, and he acted with me in How to Cheat. And then that movie did a little better than A plus D. Like again, I got distribution with a slightly bigger company and I won more awards and it played in more festivals. And, and was uh, festivals really kind of the best, like how you met everyone? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Yeah. But the, by then I had my first child. So I was traveling around to festivals with a newborn. <laughs> and that was pretty hellish. I'm assuming not as much alcohol as uh, the normal. I mean, literally person. it was like, well, okay. So my husband works for NASA. And when this was all happening, he was working on the launch of the Mars Rover. And so we had to move to Florida. You're like, mm-hmm, <laughs> as you do, as you do. So we moved to Florida for six months with this newborn. I think she was like three he's months. Like, old he's not time. the guy that got the Mars rover. It, didn't it crash into Mars? Well, it landed as it was supposed yeah, to land. No, no, no. I think that it was a. He's, he's the guy success. that built the jetpack <laughs> that lowers the rover down onto the planet. That on the last, he worked on all the all the different ones that are up there right now, uh, doing different things. But anyway, we were in Florida, and he was like, you know, putting it, assembling everything on the rocket ship and about to, they can only launch at this one certain time. So he wasn't able to like come with me to film festivals because he was working like 12 to 14 hours a day on you know, yeah, NASA yes. stuff. So I was having a fly alone. And I remember I went to a few festivals and it was just like, you're flying you with know, a newborn. With the newborn, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, I and would, like, does anyone come the... with you? Is there like a you know you've got like a best friend or somebody who tags along? No, nothing. No, I don't have any friends. Remember, I said, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I had no one. You know, we didn't have the money for like a nanny. We didn't even have the time to like hire a nanny. It was like we had this newborn, and then we have to pack up and go to Florida, and then oh shit, I want you know I want to go to some of these festivals because who knows when I'm going to get to go again. But it was literally, I'm not kidding you. It was like you know, wake up with the baby at like seven in the morning. No one else is awake for the festival, you know, sort of have breakfast alone. Then it would be time for nap, have to go back up to the hotel room, put her down for a nap. Then I'd get to like come down to the lobby, chat with people for like 45 minutes. Then it was time for her next nap, have to go. So I didn't really even leave the hotel. And then she'd have to go to bed at like 7.30 or eight. And that's when all the parties are starting. So I do have some fun like pictures of like winning awards while I'm wearing like the baby ergo sure. and the yeah, pushing yeah. it. Like I have this one picture from Ben Film Festival Festival where I'm carrying her sleeping. And I went up 
you know, to get the award while she was sleeping, managed to not wake her. And then mm-hmm. I had the stroller with my two awards <laughs> in the stroller. That's <laughs> like, great. That's great. So your second movie, thirty thousand dollar movie, How to Cheat, does that does that launch you into the stratosphere? No. <laughs> I mean, it I like to think of my career as like it's like steady steps up, you know? Like each movie did a little better than the last, but I never had that like stratosphere launching kind of thing that some people have. That sounds wonderful. I'd love to experience that. Honestly, that's kind of part of the point of this show, right? Like the stories that you hear on fresh air or whatever, where someone is just like, well, I wrote an incredible screenplay and then, you know, I'm friends with a famous person and then we were receiving an Oscar you know, they are probably cutting out a lot of the hard work that um, that's less interesting for a, a broad audience. But but the point of this show is is illustrating that it, it can happen incrementally. You know what I mean? Like you can't plan on overnight success. Right. So but you can plan on continuing to to hustle your way through it, basically. You can't plan on overnight success. And And the other thing I think that people are cutting out of those stories is Oh, and, you know, my dad had a million dollars, so I got to make my first feature with my dad's money. Or, oh, yeah, and my uncle is, you know, Martin Scorsese. Or, you know, I mean, that stuff does happen. And that's not to say that those people don't also totally deserve a seat at the table. They do, you know. It's really hard when you're somebody that doesn't come from that sort of Hollywood world and you don't have connections and you don't have money and you're trying to compare yourself to those people. I mean, it's just not, it's not healthy to do that. I think it's, I really... I really want not not only in this industry but in all for us to kind of embrace like the ordinary embrace a mundane life you know I mean I I've had to do that I'm just happy being an artist I'm happy getting to make art I mean obviously I'd love to you know have a house with a pool <laughs> you know things like that but I also just am I feel really lucky that you know I can pay my mortgage and you know and and that I have this nice quiet life yeah i mean but that's i think your story is the better story because it's you know people can a it's fine if your first well a it's fine if your first feature doesn't get you a marvel movie you know the second feature the third feature the fourth feature you know like sure there's the ryan coogler and the diablo cody's but they're just like incredibly rare and just because your first movie doesn't you know win an Oscar doesn't mean you should give up, which I think a lot of people do give up after their first movie doesn't get into Sundance, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people that are just geniuses and those people like the Diablo Cody's or whatever, like, yeah, they just, you also can't compete with that because you can't, you know, I mean, we all just have the skills and tools that we have, but I will say though, like when I was at Sundance finally years later, right. For how does it start? I ran into Kim Yutani who's the head programmer at Sundance. And I was just like, oh, I just want to go up and say, you know, so I went up and I said, hey, you know, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Amber Seeley. And she goes, yeah, A plus D. I remember that movie. That was a great movie. And I was like, oh my God. Like the fact that she knew who I was and remembered that first movie that, you know, almost got in, but didn't get in, you know, I just think, I don't know, that felt, like special to me, you know, even though I, I don't get to say my move, my first movie got into Sundance, it's, it felt nice to be remembered that she, you know, remembered that movie. It felt, I was like, oh, you know, she sees 
all the best movies in the world, you know, and that she remembered who I was. I don't know. That felt important to me. So that was my version of rocketing out of the launch pad. You know? 100%. Yeah, well I think also it's easy to lose sight of the idea that programmers love movies and like you know sometimes they could be more gracious in rejecting or accepting a movie or whatever but like we had Drea Clark on who um programs she she's incredible, right? And like she was like, "Oh yeah, I work watch like six movies a day." You know what I mean? Like, like she loves, and every programmer I know is like that. They're just like they're insatiable. They're just they're they're watching movies nonstop, and it's because they love movies and they love filmmakers, right? And so it's hard. And they're good at recognizing potential too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Drea was yeah. a producer on my third movie, No Light and No Land Anywhere. Look at that. Look so at tell that. us about about that film. So you made the second movie. It played some uh, some more festivals, got some more exposure, got distribution again. And then, like, was there a time when you were, like, meeting with all the managers and agents in Hollywood and doing all that stuff and people are sending you scripts and it's like, what's what's going to be this next multi-million dollar film? And then at some point you're like, you know what, I'm just going to make a third movie and not wait for all these a-holes to call me back? Um, I mean, if there was a point, that it wasn't then. <laughs> you know, I mean, I then had my second kid. And I think there was also a period where I was like, I knew I wanted to be a very involved mom and I knew I wanted to be really present for my kids. And I saw a lot of my peers uh, going off and directing television and being sent to Atlanta and Vancouver and being gone for three months at a time. And, and I was just like, I don't want that when my kids are young. Like I don't, and my husband has a very regular job, you know, he can't just take off with me. And, um, and I just, I wanted to be around my kids when they were really young. So again, I think it was, it was just a matter of, wanting to be in control, wanting to be in control of my own schedule, where I went and setting boundaries for your life. It sounds like. Yeah. But also maybe not yet feeling ready or feeling like, you know, again, I think I mentioned like I grew up with not a lot of money, you know, and it took me a long time to get really comfortable or to to really understand how to ask for tons, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so I think in a sense, I wasn't quite ready for that back then either you know so it was a it was a bunch of different things that all added up together for it to just make sense for me to still kind of keep it small figure out my voice you know were you interested sorry to interrupt but were you interested in directing other people's writing because you know so far it's just at this point in the story it's just your writing that you're directing at that point I wasn't really no I mean I was maybe if something great landed on my lap but you know I just I didn't get anything that seemed really amazing, you know, and, and I was really more interested in kind of figuring out what it was that I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and, um, and experimenting with like my own style, you know? So yeah, no light, no land anywhere. You know, there's so much stuff that I think is fascinating about this with the, on the, the point of like the money of it all. Right. I think that people, you know, there's the concept of ease, right, of like being good around people who have money, which like is a skill that people who were raised with money naturally have. Right. Like they're comfortable. They can talk to their teacher like they're a peer or they're like, you know, there's just like a a, um, a lightness to them in, in, in a certain sense that I think that there are oftentimes filmmakers don't realize 
that's a part of the job perhaps right when you're like asking for fundraising and things like that it's a, a thing that we have to kind of come to terms with and and figure out how we as individuals want to tackle that problem you know what i mean i think that that's not something that we've talked about on the show very much right there's also this like guilt that people mm -hmm, didn't grow up with money like oh will you give me a hundred thousand dollars i hope i don't lose it i'll try to get it back for you like all this stuff where you see like wealthy people like yeah i lost five million dollars but you know there was potential like it made sense at the time yeah it's not a big deal right yeah Yeah, and, and that's just so hard to wrap my head around but but it brings me to my second point which i think is interesting about your initial films costing so little that it's and that's not a in any way a put down but it makes it easier to do the next one right if the first one's ten thousand dollars it's not such a big jump to go to 30 it's not such a big jump to go to 30 and also not insane to raise that money from your friends and family in the same way you're not asking them to like really go out on an extreme limb you know you have enough friends to throw in 20 50 100 bucks a pop to get to ten thousand dollars and so it's not like you're you if you were trying to raise three hundred thousand dollars you know what i mean like i don't know about listeners at home or whoever but like that taps most people out that's basically impossible for most people do you know what i mean like no one knows you know unless they have someone super super rich but so like by starting in something that you can maybe recoup or isn't overextending your 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 network your friends and family is maybe a secret to the success of it all do you know what I mean? It's not just about starting small. There's a strategy to it maybe that you backed into. Yeah. I mean, it certainly wasn't conscious. I think it was more just all I felt I could raise. Sure. But I think you guys so should talk about, yeah. you should talk about money on this podcast a lot. I mean, it's so, I don't know. I, I took this really interesting, actually Sundance and Women Film had a financing forum for women. And they had a special workshop this one day that was about basically women and money. And this very wealthy woman uh, came and spoke to all of us. But this is like her job as she talks about women's relationship to money. And she asked us these questions like, when you were a kid who had the money, what did it feel like to ask for money? What did it mean to not have money? And there were about 50 women there. All of us were sobbing, sobbing. And it was so fascinating. And for me, it just like, that was a changing point for me where I suddenly was like, oh my God, because my my mom had this whole family of very you know wealthy Jewish doctors. And she was the only one in her family that did not marry a Jewish doctor. And her, you know, my mom and my dad were like artist hippies, you know, living in a teepee, live, you know, living in a commune. And so they didn't have money in my mom's family. Whenever we would go to visit them, I was like, my God, their house is like a mansion. Like they drove fancy cars, like everything. And I remember, you know, I went to private school for a little bit as a kid because my uncle paid for it. And then when he, I guess he had put a certain amount of money aside. And then when that ran out, we had to switch and go over to public school. And so I was just very aware of like the, that family has the money. We don't have the money. And whenever I needed something as a kid, like I remember, you know, when I got into the Rada acting Shakespeare program, it was like 7,000 pounds or something to pay for it. And my family couldn't afford it. And my mom was like, well, ask your relatives, like her knowing that they, God, I hope none of them listen to this, but it's fine. Um, you know, I knew, uh, you know, my mom was basically like, they can afford it. They can help you, you know, ask them to help you. And so as a kid, I was taught to like 
go and ask them for money. And it always felt so shaming. Like I was, I was so conscious of like, oh, I don't have it. And I have to go ask the people who do have it. And it just felt humiliating and embarrassing. And so I was dragging that kind of childhood shit with me into my adulthood as a filmmaker and feeling like, oh, when I go ask someone for $5 million, it's the same thing as when I was a little kid asking my uncle for money to help. Yeah. And, and I, and I suddenly was like, had to do this whole like 180 and was just like, no, that's not what's happening here. Like, first of all, I'm not asking for money for myself. I'm asking for them to like make a piece of art with me, you know? And at the same time, like Amanda Palmer was coming out with all her, all of her, like the art of asking anything. I can't remember the name of her book, but like, you know, just people were talking about how to crowdfund in a way that was really beautiful and interesting and wasn't about asking for money. Cause like, you know, that crowdfunding money, not a penny of that went into my pocket. You know, I was taking from my own pocket to, to, you know, augment what I, what I raised from the crowdfunding. So, um, so there, it was, it was learning about my own sort of messed up history with money and learning how to heal that. And it was also just getting to an age or a place in my career where I was suddenly like, I know 100%, 110% that you could give me $50 million and I would know exactly how to spend it properly, you know? And I don't know that 10 years ago, I would have known that. I know that now. I needed to get to, you know, where I am to know that, I guess, you know? So it was a lot of different parts of healing, but I just think money is such an interesting conversation to have with people because I also think people should be really honest about the benefits that they have. You know, the truth is, is that, I also really benefit from having a husband who has a regular job, you know, so he earns a regular income. I can take time off in between projects because we can still pay our mortgage because he's getting paid a regular paycheck every two weeks. And there are people in this industry who don't have that. And so they have to maybe take jobs that they really don't want to take or, you know, uh, do commercials You're or things talking like to that. Them. <laughs> We're both married to actors. Yeah, I tried I to mean, marry a NASA engineer. Should have. I was. I almost married an actor. Whew, I dodged that bullet. So glad I married an engineer. Yeah. Oren was an engineer, to be fair. So. Yeah, my wife married so, an engineer. Uh, maybe. And your then wife what did the you? One. You quit? I, yeah, I moved to Hollywood. Um, damn, well, so damn. I guess on that topic, can you tell us? Are you allowed to tell us the budget of No Light and No Land anywhere? Yeah, I mean. The budget was two point three million. Um, million. Yeah. Oh wow! So from thirty to two point three million. Now that's a that's a well, healthy no, budget. Well, no, no light and no land anywhere. The budget there was seventy five, I think. And then how does Wait, it start? Seventy five thousand. Seventy five thousand. Yeah. Oh okay. And um and then how does it start? The short the budget there was twenty five though. Okay. And then so No I Man of from, God is when. And you then did. No Man of God. I know. I feel like all the titles of all my movies sound very similar, <laughs> so it gets confusing. And then No Man of God was two point three million. Let's talk about that film because that's that's you know the the one we're here to talk about. This is your. <laughs> you know, your new film, but it is kind of a culmination of a handful of different things, right? Like I'm looking at it's Spectre Vision, which is Elijah Wood's company, right? Company X, XYZ Films, RLJ Entertainment. If you're tracking independent film, you recognize all of those names, right? Um, so tell us how did that film come to be and how did you become a part of it? Yeah. And it's the first feature that's not written, at least on IMDb, not written by you solely. Yeah. That movie came to me 
it's so great because it came to me exactly how it's supposed to. My manager got the script. She had had a relationship with SpectraVision and she sent me the script and, and I read it and I went in and pitched sorry on to, it. And I got sorry to pump up. the brakes real quick, but when did yeah. you get the manager after the third feature or after the Sundance short? Uh, well, I had always had agents and managers because I was an actor, right? So like there was some overlap of like you leave one and go to another. I, I got Cora my manager at MGMT, I think it was after No Light and No Land Anywhere. We had met a couple times at those, you know, those sort of round table, Sundance Women in Film round table things. Um, we had met a couple times, been on some of those same tables. And and then she donated to my No Light and No Land Anywhere crowdfunding campaign. And actually her wife was writing a TV project about something to do with space travel. And so she met with my husband and asked him some questions about that. And, and so anyway, we just kept in touch and then I needed a new manager and she came on and yeah. Very cool. Because it's like, there's this stress sometimes when you have a manager that you feel like you want to make money for them. Right. You know, I used to feel that I don't feel that anymore. I think this is the first time in my career where I, I have agents and managers who are my friends and I like them and I, I can totally be myself with them and. I know you don't they feel like you owe them or whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't. I feel like it's like we are we are all working towards furthering my career. You know, we all want to make money, certainly. But I don't feel I don't have this like, oh, God, are they going to drop me? You know, I don't have that worry. I don't have, you know, that sometimes when I was an actor, I felt like I couldn't really be my real self with my agents. Like it was like a, I'd put on a show. I don't feel that. I don't feel that at all with them, which is great. And again, it could just be like getting older, you get a little wiser. <laughs> I don't know. But um, but anyway, yeah, No uh, no Man of God came through Quora. And and then I went and I pitched on it. And I, it all happened really fast because um, they had the life rights to Bill Hagmeyer. And they had to shoot the film in the within the year. Or the life rights were going to run out. Yeah. And Bill and Hagmeyer so I, is the person that did this expose on Ted Bundy. Yeah, he's who Elijah Wood plays. He's a real life. FBI, or FBI profiler. Yeah, yeah. Investigator profiler. Not an yeah. expose. I don't know why it's in there. Cool. And so, and how much did you know about this story before you got the, the job? Nothing. I mean, I knew who Ted Bundy was, obviously, but I did not know who Bill Hagmeyer was. I didn't know anything about him or about his relationship with Bundy. And do you know what it was about your pitch that won you the job? My charm, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> walk, walk us through the pitch, actually. Tell us a little bit about, like, how did you prepare for it? What did you bring in? And maybe know, do are you, you a, just just you for some do context. Do, do you mind <laughs> um, just telling us the logline for the film, real quick, just so people? Oh, I don't have I don't have the logline memorized. I don't even think you know what's great when you work for like a bigger company. You don't have to write the logline, write the logline or the synopsis. I can that, read it off like, MDB if you want. Yeah, you can read it. Yeah, go ahead. No man of God. Starring Elijah Wood and Luke, Luke Kirby is about the complicated relationship that formed be- between the FBI analyst Bill Hagmeyer and serial killer Ted Bundy during Bundy's final years on death row. Yeah, how would you expect me to memorize that? Come on. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's well, the craziest thing on the podcast. I'd say eighty percent of the time when we ask filmmakers what their movies about, they're like, uh, "Well, uh, it's well." That's because <laughs> filmmakers hate talking about like what's the movie about, and they also hate asking, "What do you want audiences to take away from this?" We hate those. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? Well, no, uh, but but when we, you pitch on the movie, obviously you probably come in and you're sure. like, "This movie is really about." 
two right. men in battle I, in a duel. I, well, I, I want to hear Amber. Tell tell us how did you pitch it? How did you how did you win this job? Yeah, maybe you even keyed on some theme that no one else did. That that kind of I was the anchor yeah. Of the film. So well, obviously I read the script a couple times, and I I either have a take on it or I don't. And in this case, I did. Like I had a I had a take. And I pull together, you know, anywhere between 10 and 30 pages of something, you know, of, of images and thoughts. And I and don't what, get what do you mean by a take? I mean, I, I think I know what you mean, but can you expand well, on you that? You know, when you're reading a script and you're like, oh, yeah, like I could see how this is done. I, I, this should be done this way. Like this is what it will look like and this is what it will feel like. And this is the tone and, you know, a take like a, like I have a version but- of this movie that I want to make. But do you feel like that take needs to be succinct, like special? Like you yeah, think, yeah. like what's that movie about the um, the black women that helped put the rock, you know, man on the moon? Um, oh, Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures, yeah. Like there's movies like that that are like these really great movies. But at least when I see them, I'm like, yeah, that like if you read the script, this is the movie you would direct. You know, like like sometimes there's a movie where the take is just so uniquely of the director and sometimes yeah. it just kind of feels like you kind of translated what's on the script what was, yeah yeah i totally agree with you totally agree with you i mean i think it's job dependent there are some jobs that i'm going up for where i can tell like they just want me to execute this thing that they have on the page and and that's what i'm here to do and then some jobs where you're like they really want my voice and they want me to come and put a spin on it and you know I mean, with No Man of God, I didn't know what they wanted, but I knew that if I were going to make a Ted Bundy movie, that I had to put my spin on it or else it wasn't, I wasn't interested. So I went in there very strongly. I even said to them, look, it's fine if you guys don't hire me, I don't care, but you have to hire a woman, like a cool woman director for this. Like, it just isn't going to fly in this day and age to have, you know, a man directing a Ted Bundy movie when there've been so many already made, you know, like you just have to be doing something new and different. And they were like, to their credit, they were like, oh yeah, no, we know, we totally get it. But I honestly, I didn't talk too much in the pitch about like, you know, the look of the film or even the tone per se, um, what I talked about was what the script made me think of and what it mostly made me think of as was like, uh, what is it like to sit so close to evil and what does that do to you? And I really felt strongly that it was more Bill's story than it was Bundy's story, that it wasn't just a Bundy movie. And it was about the relationship between the two of them and how they affected each other. And so I talked a lot about that. And I actually talked to, you know, at the time when I was pitching, Trump was still president. And so, you know, I pitched how I felt, you know, because to me at the time, I was feeling like, how can I sit so close to evil? You know, like, how can I live in this country with these people who think it's okay to put children in prison cells and let them die there? You know, like that to me is the worst kind of evil. And I just was like, I didn't understand how me and say like a diehard Trump supporter could have lived in the same, you know, state or country or city even, you know, I just felt like, how could, how could I sit so close to evil? How does this happen? And that was basically what... Sorry to interrupt, but when I watched the trailer for No Man of God, you know, there's this kind of, it's clear that Elijah Wood, who's this FBI interrogator or analyst, is is being drawn into Bundy's world. And he's like, he's like, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's also just like so charming and fun to talk to. And it you hear about Trump's like um, derangement, uh, mm-hmm. like radius or whatever. Field. Yeah, yeah. The distortion field. Yeah. That people next to him just like even if they hated him before they met him, they just, if he says one nice thing about them, that makes them feel so special. 
Um, and I kind of I mean, got I, I that from Trump being fascinating. Like he's so fucking weird, but I, <laughs> I, I think I would be like, Oh my God, like that kind of, um, narcissism and desperation to be, you know, to get adulation like that. It's actually really fascinating to watch. And that Trump and Bundy both have, you know, they both are complete narcissists, completely deeply insecure, you know? So I just saw these parallels. Um, and I also saw this sort of, I saw parallels between, you know, people at Trump rallies and the people who were rallying outside of Bundy's prison going, you know, burn him, burn him. You know, I just, so I was connecting it to like the now I was saying, you know, how is it, how is this movie who takes movie that takes place in the eighties, you know, how is it relevant to today? And to me, it was like, it was about that. Um, now, how much do you that, watch other Bundy fare and like try to distance yourself from it or be inspired by it or? Um, I try to distance myself from it. Certainly. I mean, I saw most of, I didn't watch everything all the way through, but I watched everything I could find. I, I, I watched little bits of, cause I wanted to see what had been done already. You know, like right. I was yeah, like, you don't want to realize like, Oh shoot, I'm doing, you know, so I'm doing the same. Them. Yeah. You yeah. also cast Zach Efron. Oh. I, I thought <laughs> about dang. it. But I, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what, like, what I love about that though, about your take specifically, Amber, is that like, um, Oftentimes we hear from executives like the the two big questions are why you and why now, right? And your take answers both of those, right? Like you've personalized it because you're you're asking, you know, what what would it feel like to be so close to this and therefore relating to it, right? Like what would it feel like to be so close to evil, but also connecting it to something in the zeitgeist that's very pertinent, you know? And so again, I'm sure that's not a strategy, but like you know, sometimes we hear from development people that they're like, those are kind of two of the big things that they're they're thinking of, right? Like, oh, she sees a way in specifically and it's connected to everyone else somehow as well. And you got to admit, that's a pretty good opening sentence. Like, you know, reading what? the script made me think, like, what does it feel like to be so close to evil? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the movie is done. What's next? Uh, lots of things. I have a script that I'm writing that I'm really excited about. I think I told you for Luke and Luke Kirby and Connor Ratliff. That's a comedy, buddy comedy, a la Midnight Run or Planes, Trains and Automobiles. So I'm writing that. I also have another comedy that I'm writing with my friend Satya Baba that is very exciting. And then I'm attached to a movie called The Education of Shelby Knox which is another real life uh, story about a real life girl named Shelby Knox, who, when she was a teenager, she tried her town, Lubbock, Texas. It's also very timely. Uh, Lubbock, Texas had the highest rates of teen pregnancy and teen STDs or STIs, as we now call them, um, in the whole country. And so she tried to get her school board to teach real sex education because she saw how it was unfairly affecting the girls in her town. And um uh, anyway, and she grew up to be a really cool feminist activist and um, lived with Gloria Steinem. She was her roommate for two years in New York. And, uh, and is it yeah. a remake? Or? No, they made a documentary about her that was at, at Sundance and South by when, you know, that was back when she was like 15, 16, I think. And, uh, and now we're doing a narrative, narrative version of it. So that. I'm attached to that. We're going to make that. And you have a TV pilot, right? Year. You're working on? I have a TV pilot, yeah, called Sister that I wrote. And yeah, a couple other 
couple other things we're trying to see if we can get the money together for. You know, you always have to have a bunch of different things going so you can, you know, you never know which one is going to go first, depending on financing and schedules. And and what about, do you have an interest in kind of the episodic TV, like kind of getting into, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, it's it's great to stay in LA. It's, you know, me too now, because I work mostly commercially, it's like, I any job that will shoot in LA beats any job that shoots out of town. We have a friend who's actually on the podcast that is a show running a, a show in Canada right now. And he had to leave his family, his wife and two kids in LA because of like quarantines and all sorts of issues in school. And it's like, you know, it's rough being away from your family for three months. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's your take on TV? Well, my you? take is, I mean, first of all, Yes, my kids are old enough now that I could go for a few months and it would be fine. So that's important. Like I wouldn't have done it when they were one or two. It, like it just would have been too hard for me. Um, but they're old enough now that I can. But I'm very like kind of judgmental, I guess, when it comes to television. And I, 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 I have a few shows that I would really want to do. And then there are a lot of shows that I'm just, I just am not that interested in. And I think again, because we were talking about with the financial security thing, you know, because I don't have to take any job that comes my way, that means I, I don't have to scramble to get, you know, a, a procedural job that I wouldn't honestly be really right for, you know, like, I think there are people that love that kind of stuff. And it's just so right up their alley. And for me, I think I'm much more of like a, you know, HBO kind of, stuff. And I think that those shows sadly don't hire, I don't know. I mean, they, I don't think they're scrambling to look for me yet, <laughs> hopefully one day. Um, but, uh, yeah, it sucks when they make like eight episodes and like six of them are directed by the showrunner. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I or know. The and then they're like, and we have to give one to our DP and one yeah. to our, yeah. yeah, which is great. I'm glad other people are getting the opportunities, but, um, I think honestly, I just, I do best when I get to have a strong voice and episodic television, that's not the place for that. You know, you're not there to make your mark and it's a great moneymaker. And I, and I hope they are hiring so many more women and people of color, but I'm just not scrambling to do that because I just find like, I, I think of myself more as an artist and I, I love, I love it when I can try out weird things and do interesting different stuff. And I think the feature space is really where there's room for that, you know, um, well, where I can I, really like use my voice. I, I, that boy, how wonderful, right? That sounds so great. I, I'm curious. Cause it, like if, if the arc of this episode is like, you know, kind of tracking the, the uh, incremental progress that you've made, how do you feel like you, you are now like, how, has has your this last movie changed your career in any way you know like do you feel like like we went from ten thousand dollars to 2.3 million dollars right do you feel like doors are opening for those other projects more now or or does it has it happened in slow motion and so it's a little harder to notice i think actually it's both like i it certainly has happened in slow motion like this didn't happen overnight you know but at the same time, yeah, um, no man of God certainly has opened doors and, you know, and I mean, you can see it, this sounds dumb, but like, you know, on IMDb Pro, you can see your track, you know, your star tracker, whatever they call that, sure. like your star meter. Yeah. yeah. And then you, and you're like, oh, I guess a lot of people are looking me up right now. And yeah, I'm getting sent way more scripts than I used to, which is great. 
it's very hard to read all of them. <laughs> but, but those are tangible differences. It's not just like, oh, the phone rings, you know, a little bit more frequently now. You're like, no, you're seeing it's definitely, specifics. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely tangible for sure. Yeah. And, and getting to pitch on much higher budgets than I was say a year ago. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious, do you have any advice for like young filmmakers nowadays that are trying to, you know, do kind of what you do, like get into the feature world, get into festivals, get into Hollywood, work with great it's funny, actors I, and stars? I, I always want to say this thing that I can never say because it's like not politically correct or something. But honestly, to that question, I just want to say no, I don't have any advice. Like I don't. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that's totally valid. Yeah. I mean, and that, but that's for many reasons. One, because I'm tired of young people in this industry. We have this industry is so obsessed with young people. And like, I, I have something to say to the six year old woman who wants to make a movie. Like that person is so much more interesting to me. Well, yeah. And, and I don't mean to imply young people. I just mean new people. And new. Back to my original answer, which is like nothing. I don't have anything to say to anyone because, well, because I don't have any advice for anyone because everyone has to make their own path. It's different for everybody. There's no one single path. And the only thing that like you, the only thing that is consistent for everyone who's successful is that they don't give up. But I don't even want to say that to people because I think there are people that should give up. There are people that just like, it takes too much out of you either emotionally or financially or, or really you just weren't meant to do it, you know, and you should give up and it's, there's nothing dishonorable about giving up. You know, I think that th there are so many people, I mean, the best actor I ever worked with at UC Santa Cruz and maybe the best actor I'd ever seen is a kid who tried to make it as an actor. You know, I think he went for five or 10 years after college and just could not make a living. And, uh, and now he's now just he's the an charming accountant. guy in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now he's, yeah. yeah. And so I just feel like, I don't know. It's okay to give up and, but there's no one path. You just have to like, this sounds cheesy, but stay true to you and just like try to do you. And if you want to give up, give up. It's all right. You know, like that's, there's no shame in that. What, what I'm hearing though, is that um, I feel like we're just surrounding Hollywood is, is filled with uh, obsessives. Right. And that what we're really trying to battle is the, um, obsession of wanting to spend 20 hours a day making your art and also rationally understanding that there does need to be a work-life balance and that it's quite reasonable to want to have a family as well right that's that's all we're talking about is like can how can i combine being a normal person with also being this obsessive creative right yeah, um, and, that and there's obviously a lot of satisfaction that comes from the family side too. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, for me, the thing honestly is like there's these waves. There are weekends where I say to my husband, like, I and I just lock myself in here and I write for like twelve hours a day and I don't see them for like the whole weekend. But I can do that because during the week. I picked them up every day at school at three o'clock and he worked until five 30, you know, so it's like these extra hours here and there that he does. And then extra hours, you know, so we try and balance it out. So we each get kind of equal work time, but like, I certainly am that kind of worker that like when I'm writing, I can't just write in half hour bursts. I sit and I write and I'll write for nine hours straight. And I, but I don't do that very often. You know, like there's some people, that they every day at 9 30 I sit down and, yeah and I love believe me I love that it sounds 
great. Unfortunately, I'm <laughs> not that kind of person. So I do it in these in these rushes and and I need that. Like that's I need to go deep and go long and think about it for a long time and the stopping and starting just sadly doesn't work for me. So I don't know, but and that's hard with you know, and if I didn't have a husband, like if he was also doing a gig kind of job and needing to, you know, fly to yeah. Nashville or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um I well, have a sorry. One last story on the topic. It's real quick. Uh, but I had this actor friend that was also like an amazing actor, and he would always say, "If you want to be a successful actor, the people that are successful actors aren't the people that love acting. They're the people <laughs> that like love auditioning. You know, uh, if yeah. if you can think about rethink about your goals as like, I love writing, I love pitching, I love meeting with people, I love doing all these things, and if I get on set, that's awesome too." But if you measure your success by how many days you're shooting, then you'll probably disappointed. be disappointed. I mean, yeah. and that just reminds me of, I think it was Shonda Rhimes that said something about, because I've been sort of lamenting like that you have to be a great pitcher in order to get jobs. Like you have to be really good in the room and on the pitch. And I think I'm good with certain kinds of pitches and other kinds I'm not. And I'm definitely more of a, you know, I speak in circles and I, I go off in tangents and stuff. And and sometimes I know that that's not what people want in a pitch. You know, they want to like, okay, so we begin on a cloudy, you know, pick, yeah. And that's just not me and not the way I pitch. And sometimes I feel like I'm trying to be that and I can't. And I remember Shonda Rhimes said like, some she always looks for the people who are like nervous and not very good pitchers and kind of stutter a little bit or whatever, because she's like, just because you can't give a good pitch doesn't mean you're not an amazing writer or director. And I was like, yes, thank you. Because I feel like sometimes a lot of these executives are looking for how you are at pitching. And to me, how you are as a pitcher is not any indication of how you are as a director. Like they're very different skill sets. And I wish people would kind of take that into consideration more often because I love making pitch decks. I love doing that. And I love talking about how I want to direct something, but I don't actually really love pitching so I think there's just different, but you're right. You know, you have to kind of find something that you love about the job. That's, um, that's your day to day stuff because the winning awards or going to can, you know, even when you get to do that stuff, it doesn't feel like you think it's going to feel like, and mm -hmm. it's so short. It really is short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even, even if you were, if you, if you had a, a flawless track record, we're still only talking about a handful of days out of your whole life. You know, um, winning awards or, or, you know, going to fancy festivals. So, well, Amber, um, we could talk to you for hours and hours more. Um, I'm like, we... this is the end. I just, this is my <laughs> whole social engagement for the night, guys. Well, <laughs> don't be too bummed. We yeah. still have an entire segment left. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so excited. Unpaid endorsements. My unpaid endorsement, I've got two. One is a rehash, actually, but it, it, are either of you two familiar with the show The Other Two? You know, I've been meaning to watch it. It's on HBO, right? Well, so it was on Comedy Central back in the day. Oh, and the then first season? The first season was on Comedy Central, and then there was a big change up, and I just heard the creators, Sarah Schneider and Chris Kelly, who were co-head writers of uh, SNL a few years back. Sarah was, was from college humor and chris actually went to my rival high school funny enough um so i've been rooting for them for a long time not that they need my encouragement they've been crushing it but um but so i always loved that first season was really great and no one was talking about it now both season one and season two are on hbo max so a heck of a lot more people are going to see the show 
the other two. It's really great, really funny, super joke dense. And then my other endorsement, this one's a real crazy one. Uh, I have taken to throwing a splash of grapefruit juice uh, in your in coffee. Please don't tell. Oh. In my espresso, and it is life changing. It's incredible. You know, I went to uh, some coffee shop the other day, and they had some drink with like watermelon juice and lime in a coffee. And I was like, what? Oh, it was Intelligentsia. I was like, why would you even uh, like put it makes me not want to drink coffee right now. And I'm at a coffee shop. Right. So so you, you said that you saw this at Intelligentsia. I was at a similar sort of like yuppie high end coffee shop. And so I was like, okay. and this one, they they did it with a little tonic water as well. And I love a, a, like an espresso tonic on a, like a hot summer day is perfect. So listen, people have been putting a twist of lemon in their espresso for hundreds of years. As long as espresso has been around, they've been doing that. So like just taking I mean, lemons are only invented out. 65 years ago, but OK, <laughs> we'll go with it. Um, you should ask Stanley Tucci about that. He's got a whole episode about lemons on that CNN show. Anyway, uh, so grapefruit in your coffee and the other two are my two endorsements. Amber, what you got? I'm going to. OK, but I, as you were talking, I thought of a few things. The one first is my Breville, Breville, I don't even know how to say it, air fryer. Oh, I yeah. got People this, are really into this and I let me tell you, like, it's so great. We've been dehydrating. It's it's a dehydrator and air fryer and we've been dehydrating apple rings. Love it. So great. Um, Can I ask how long ago you got that? Because I, I want to hear someone that more than a year after they bought one of these things is still using it. No, I think we got I got it. I think it was my Hanukkah Christmas present from my husband. So no, oh, so almost a year. that? The other thing that I am really enjoying, and I have Jennifer Aniston to thank for this, is um, these coffee, like chocolate <laughs> water. Sorry. So she's a, like I've, she's like a spokesperson for so many different water brands. This it's is crazy. this is my this is my um, what what do you call this section? Your my uh, unpaid, unpaid endorsement. Unpaid endorsement. My unpaid endorsement is for Jennifer Aniston. I just want to say, I don't know why I like her so much. Like I, <laughs> I think I just. I can this be I related even... to your friend's endorsement? <laughs> Maybe. Well, no, it is because I've been watching friends to put myself to sleep. Like, when my anxiety was really bad in the pandemic, I had to find just like really dumb, you know, not dumb, but just like easy breezy, nothing complicated TV shows to watch. And so I went through like all of the Gilmore Girls, which I'd never seen. And, and then I was now I've been working my way through friends and I just put it on and I fall asleep to it at night and it's great. But I, I'm oddly obsessed with jennifer aniston i don't know i don't know why but i just really like her and she had on her instagram had this advertisement for this collagen vital something you guys are gonna have to google this and see what it's called but anyway there's this chocolate one and you put it in a blender with like you know some almonds peanut butter ice water oat milk and it's like the yummiest chocolate milkshake and I feel like I'm pretending to be Jennifer Aniston when I drink it. And uh, yeah, it's called Vital Proteins Collagen Peptides with hyaluronic yeah. acid and vitamin C. Thank which you. Actually, Thank you. I'm into the hyaluronic it's delicious. acid. Delicious. I don't know. I have no idea what that is. But uh, anyway, there's that. And then you know, no man of God. I'm not getting paid for this. I'm going to endorse that. <laughs> I think everyone. Heck yeah. There you everyone go. Everyone should go and see No Man of God. And, uh, well, it's playing in theaters, a bunch of theaters. Oh, congrats. I don't know. Thank That's you. Yes. Yeah, at the Alamo 
downtown, the Lemley NoHo, IFC New York, and then, you know, a bunch of other theaters. And then you can get it on, you know, iTunes and Amazon and Roku and all those things. Very cool. All my then, faves. Wait, I feel like I want to have one more. Birkenstocks. That's my last one. Birkenstocks. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Sure you did spend a little time in Birkenstocks. I did. Do you do the Birkenstocks? I <laughs> bought a pair to be my, we don't allow shoes in our house. But I got, but then also because of the pandemic, we haven't, we don't get a house cleaner anymore. And so now it's up to me and my husband to clean and we just don't do a very good job. So the floor like has dirt on it sometimes. And so I bought a pair of indoor shoes so I don't have to feel the dirt on the floor and they're Birkenstocks and they're great. Awesome. Uh, Birkenstocks, uh, Jennifer Aniston and her vital proteins smoothies. No Man of God. And no Man no of man God, God, which will and plug. An air fryer and, the, and then an air fryer. There is. An air fryer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Great. All right. Kaplan, what you got, okay. buddy? Okay. I just have one for once, and it's actually pretty good. Um, and I heard about it from Colin Levy, Levi, Levy, listener, also Blender superstar. But it's an Instagram channel of a guy named Dean Kelly. And the channel is called Dean Kelly underscore work. D-E-A-N-K-E-L-L-Y underscore work. And he is a Pixar story supervisor. And he's worked on many movies. Uh, Coco, Monsters, Inc., The Incredibles. You know, some small ones. And he just does breakdowns of his storyboards and the evolution of like how, you know, like he has one about Coco, about just the angles. Like how how can they tell a story about, you know, like a uh, danger in an angle, you know, um, they ha- he has one of like Sully and Mike, uh, where he's like, you know, we tried to draw this from like five different angles and we just saw that like head on is like the funniest angle to have Sully like staring down at Mike. So, uh, yeah, I, it's, I love these breakdowns and it's like literally the best movies in the world. And this guy is like telling you how much they, how these angles are communicating so much, you know, in a frame. And so I just like really love it. Dean Kelly underscore work on Instagram. And that's it. Awesome. Well, uh, Amber, thank you so much. Where can listeners find out more about you if they want to keep track of what you got going on? I guess just my website, which I never update. But um, yeah, amberseely.com. Amberseely.com. That reminds me to get on updating it <laughs> <laughs> yeah keep people posted uh and one more time where they where can they see no man of god uh they can i think best thing right now is you know itunes amazon anywhere they can download it buy it digitally anywhere well uh thanks so much amber if you have questions about uh the, any of the things that we talked about on the show or if you want to check out some of the things that we referenced you can go to justshootitpod.com or email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at Just Shoot It Pod. We're across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. I'm sensing a trend. Uh, you could follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And you can follow me at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. I'm at OKaplan on Instagram. And this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Amber.